Unloose the goose. We'll take no use. Your paradigms run out of time and we've got no use. Unloose the goose. Well, welcome to Unloose the Goose, episode 26 that I thought was 27 earlier. I was corrected by my lovely co-hosts. Today, we are going to talk about a variety of topics. We were originally going to do homesteading, and then as we kind of thought that, you know, it's it's inauguration day and there's all these things going on, that we would uh, just talk about whatever our hearts said and on the show with me today is CJ Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast. And we've got Pete Kinonis. Kinonis? I swear, Pete, I'm sorry. Did I say that right? I, I, I can always tell people who don't listen to my podcast because I only pronounce it perfectly at the beginning of every episode. You know, but, um, it was close enough. I do listen to your podcast. You'll be shocked to hear. Uh, anyway, from Free Man Beyond the Wall. And I'm Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee. And, you know, pretty much everybody I've talked to this week, we've been queued up to talk about a thing, and then we've talked about what's going on. So I'm just going to kick it off, go around the horn. What are you all feeling, like, in your hearts that you want to talk about? What do you want to share with the world today, with everything going on in the first couple weeks of the year? I'm going to start with you, CJ. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, with me, just sort of in in my my personal life and routine and whatever, as I was mentioning a little bit before we started rolling, um, you know, still like probably most people listening to one degree or another, um, still, you know, dealing with trying to keep my sanity. Uh, as 2020 really just kind of keeps rolling into 2021, and things don't seem to be getting any more uh, reasonable or sane, and um, you know, I've been thinking a lot uh, the last few days about the whole idea of the civil religion and the cult of the state. We just had a giant uh, religious ritual ceremony performed in, in D.C. Some of you may have may have heard about earlier today. And um, another thing I've been thinking about for for a while, um, part of this is because I've been doing reading over the past few months to do a Dangerous History podcast series on this at some point later in the year, and that is. I think in a lot of ways, the United States is in a similar situation to the Soviet Union in like its last, I don't know, 10 years or so, mm-hmm. where the system stopped functioning even plausibly a while ago, and the elites are still going through the motions of repeating the same slogans and whatever that stopped really resonating with anybody a while ago, but people desperately want to believe it. And so I don't know. It, it's just it's one of those things where if if you you were in a cult and then you leave the cult, but a lot of people around you are still in the cult, right? Like I, I don't know. It's it's hard to figure out what to do, especially if it seems like most of the people around you are in the cult or at least pretending to be in the cult. So that's kind of where where I've been at lately. Yeah, it's an interesting place to be, Pete. What do you got? Interesting that you bring up the Soviet Union. Um, I was thinking today how Amazon and Walmart have become our central planning. And, you know, it's basically that's it. It's like there are socialists are <laughs> they're the only ones right now who can even come close to solving the, the calculation problem. And 
<laughs> and a lot of Amazon stuff is just absolute crap too now. So, um, I've been, I've just been thinking about how the rhetoric that's coming from the press and coming from Washington DC and just how dangerous it is. Um, also just how much better the left is at power than the right. The right get power. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They could centralize <laughs> it to themselves. They, I mean, they, they fail every time, but the left, they g- gain power. They start putting people in place that, you know, you just know are the bureaucrats, the bureaucrats of the bureaucrats. And what do they do? I mean, they do the perfect negative Machiavellian thing. They come in and they're like, okay, we're going to, pu- we're going to, um, reward our friends and punish our enemies. And like right now, it's like they're trying to punish 74 million people to say, well, you voted for somebody who suborns treason and who incites insurrection. So you're just as guilty as he is. And, um, I wonder where that leaves people like me who want it to burn to the ground. Um, considering most of the people that they're talking about are just normies who, you know, if they have swallowed a red pill, it's just like they just got a little piece of it. You know, they, they haven't taken mm-hmm. the whole thing. They microdosed. Um, yeah, yeah, they microdosed. <laughs> <laughs> we can do an episode on that. Um, yeah, so okay. I'll put it on February's list. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've just been thinking about just how dangerous the rhetoric is, how dangerous the rhetoric of the left is, and at the same time, how brilliant it is in a Machiavellian sense. I mean, they're just so much better at this than the right is. And, um, man, this four years is going to be interesting. Is going is going to be interesting. I'm waiting to see what the Bubba's and, you know, the, the GOPers that have left the GOP, I'm waiting to see what they're going to do. And, um, I don't know. I'm hoping by 2024, there might be like 20 political parties. Well, that would be more fun for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about a couple of things. One, that the left is better at communication. Like the communication through values and emotion first and then into their policy prescriptions. And they, I mean, they've done a brilliant job of setting you know, through, through, in my opinion, the government schools, the foundation for people to bow to authority on all things rather than think critically. And then how they're now able to leverage this into the, this, what Pete was talking about, which is the punitive actions that are being taken. It's, it's acceptable to take five pounds of flesh for something that is relatively minor in transgression you know, voting for somebody that you believe will make the best president, it should not be a punishable crime, right? It's your, it's your opinion. And if uh, I'm not a voter, but if you did vote for president and chose one over the other, fine, eh, whatever you voted for the person you voted for, but we've normalized violence, basically violence in response to that. And I'm very discouraged by that because at the core of my, my personal philosophy is violence is bad. In in all cases and punitive justice, not 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 in all that, cases. Well, that's true. In defense of myself, it's I I would agree with that, Pete. But um, it's just normalized, and then we're shocked when we've normalized violence and more violence happens. And then it's like you're watching these robot people, or they're they're almost like they're hypnotized. They have this look on their face, and if you push this button, they do this, and if you push that button, they do that, and 
you know, for a long time I was railing against it. And now I feel like there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. So I don't mean to be hopeless, but that's, that's what's been going through my mind. So as we look at the current situation, where do you look in history or to, to just compare it to what's happened in other countries or happened in the world? And, and how do we learn from that? What are your, what are your thoughts on some of that? I, I think there, it's one of those things where, you know, because I kind of agree with the Mark Twain idea that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And so, you know, there's never like a one to one where you can just say, Oh, this one historical case matches perfectly onto what we're doing. To me, it's, it's always like a, like an amalgamation of aspects from different things. And so, you know, there's elements of this you can compare to the decline of a, of a number of empires, you know, the Soviets being the most recent, but obviously there's some parallels to aspects of Roman decline as well. Um, but another one I've been thinking about, especially ever since, um, I did an episode, um, back, I think around the time of the election, give or take, um, with the, the title, a civil religious civil war question mark, right? And this idea of civil religion, are we basically watching two rival cults? battling in the same way as like Protestants and Catholics fought in the 1500s, right? Over who's, who's the right Christian or whatever. And they're slaughtering each other by the truckload over this. Uh, and what this got me to thinking as another thing, aside from those aspects of the Soviet decline that, you know, match up with where we're at, there's also some interesting parallels to the troubles in Northern Ireland from mm-hmm. the sixties through the nineties. Mm-hmm. And, in particular, what reminds me of it is that you've got, you know, two hostile political slash religious factions um, in the same, you know, overlapping territory. Right. And at the same time, like they each have sort of like their, you know, street fighters. Um, we've seen a little bit of irregular warfare in the U.S. over the past year. It's not yet at the point like Northern Ireland where there's, you know, car bombs going off every other day and people, you know, drive by shooting at pubs full of their rivals or whatever. But still, you're starting to get, you know, some violent elements on the left acting out, some violent elements on the right acting out. And then you've got the state, right? And in the case of Northern Ireland, the the state, which was, you know, the UK government in Northern Ireland, their claim was we don't have a dog in this fight between, you know, uh, uh, loyalists and, and uh, Catholic nationalists in Northern Ireland. No, 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 no. We're just trying to stop the violence and kind of have basic law and order and whatever, except they clearly were taking sides most of the time. They clearly were helping out the Protestant paramilitaries, even though those guys were also breaking the law and doing terrorism uh, and clearly were were being, you know, not a fair mediator most of the time up until near the end and and everybody kind of knew it everybody kind of knew that if you're a, if you were a protestant paramilitary you had less to fear from from the uk state than if you were a catholic you know nationalist paramilitary or republican paramilitary and so i i see the potential for that sort of a thing to happen over the next four years that they'll be escalating uh violence of you know non-state groups and then, you know, the state allegedly is going to equally stop all the violence or whatever. But we all kind of know that because um, we've already seen it, right, that when right wingers go do some sort of right or whatever, it's treated completely differently 
than when left-wingers do something similar or potentially even worse, right? I mean, um, I, I, I very much question whether the word insurrection is an accurate description of what happened in the Capitol. That seems to me like to, to call that either an insurrection or terrorism. And by the way, I think it was stupid. Yeah. Um, I think it was just executed insurrection. It was, it was completely stupid. And, you know, it, it, it does seem like there was at least a little bit of of violence of a sort that I wouldn't endorse. But, you know, that's, that's really, that, that's like pretending that America was completely infiltrated and crawling with commies in the fifties rather than like, yeah, there's a handful of, you know, Soviet operators here and there and a few sympathizers here and there, but it's not like communism was actually just you know, completely taking over America in 1954. Uh, but it was useful to the state to pretend, right, that they believe that, um, to justify, you know, all the authoritarian things they were rolling out in the Cold War. And, and so, you know, there's this pretending, oh, this is an insurrection. This is terrorism. It's like, really? Wouldn't they need weapons? I mean, we have, we're the most well-armed country in the world as far as the populace goes. And you would think, and you know, it's almost like these right-wingers were like, oh, DC has some really bad gun laws, so we probably shouldn't go armed. Yeah. Yeah, That sounds like, that that sounds like conservatives, right? I mean, that sounds like right-wingers, you know? Well, in order. When I look at what happened, the, the obvious, the obvious word to describe what happened is riot. LARP. I call yeah, it a I mean, LARP. Well, I mean, it looked like when a bunch of teenage boys are like, let's go break into the high school. And then they get in and they're like, now what? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, that's what it looked look, like. I was, look, as, I was as up. Terrifying I, as I'm sure that was for people in there. Yeah. I was in the area. I wasn't there. But um, when I was coming home on that happened on Wednesday, I was flying home from Baltimore, Washington International on Friday. I mean, it was like everyone who was going home, it was all boomers. It was, I mean, Uh, so you're talking about like they had this huge rally that was like, I think a mile away. And then you had the Renaissance fair decided that they were just going to storm the Capitol. And, you know, I mean, I I don't know what the hell happened, but you know, all the people I saw going home were just these dejected boomers were, were just like, Oh my God, we're Trump. Q wasn't right. Oh my goodness. I mean, I mean, you want to talk about the people still fall for psyops like that is just, I I can't, I I can't believe it. I I can't believe it. It just really goes to show the the success of government schools. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk now about the power. One of you said something about Amazon and Walmart being the the power structures that are controlling what we're doing. I would throw, Central planning and, you know, big tech in there. Pete, I understand you were canceled this week. Is that correct? Yeah, I got, I got nuked on Twitter yesterday. Yeah. CJ, you still with us there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of doing the same thing I've been doing ever since I got on Twitter. Yeah. And if they kick me off, they kick me off. I'm, I'm not, I know some people are doing the like deliberately try to provoke, like (laughs) I'm going to just, you know, spout off a bunch of Nazi talking points and see if I'm, my view is more just like, I'm not going to alter my behavior one way or the other. Yeah. I'm going to keep saying what I want to say, what I would say if there was no sort of Damocles, whatever, and chips fall where they may. So- I've just been, I've been making friends with commie. I was making friends with commies and, um, 
<clears throat> mostly attacking blue-pilled libertarians mm-hmm. because I would rather hang out with red-pilled tankies than blue-pilled libertarians. I think blue, blue, blue-pilled libertarians and blue-pilled people in general are the friggin' enemy. You know, what do you mean by blue t- blue pill libertarian? Blue pill, mm-hmm. a blue pill libertarian, the ones that don't realize that don't hate the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who still think that, oh, well, you know, we could do this and we could do that, or or they've bought into the woke shit. Those people, those people got to fucking go. I mean, th- they have to go. They are the worst. And I mean, that's not libertarianism. There's no individualism to that. You're lumping people into groups. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. Now we it's... know why Pete got canceled on Twitter. So, like, with these power structures um, taking over through corporations, how do you like? How do we then break out of that? It's like I get stuff from Amazon. I'm dependent on them. Well, maybe I'm not anymore. But I think a lot of people are dependent on the supply chains that are controlled by giant corporations. And then they see all this stuff going on and they kind of go along to get along. Yeah, the the system to me, when when you look at kind of the relationship between the biggest corporations, whether it's it's Amazon, it's Walmart, it's the, you know, the social media and other big tech giants and whatever, and their relationship with the state, uh, it's it's very fascistic in the sense of constantly blurring the line between state and corporate. And, you know, it's it's more corporate when they want it to be and 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 you know, embed with the state when they want it to be that way. Um, and one of the benefits just from a purely tactical sense that, that you get from, from a fascistic corporatist system versus like an outright, you know, communist, uh, Bolshevik system is the fascistic system at least has enough aspects of the market that it'll be more efficient and productive than a purely like Soviet communist, uh, system, right? And so, you know, it's not going to be I think we'd all agree probably as productive as a true genuine market system, but it's going to be more productive and resilient and better able to kind of bribe enough of the populist into being happy than something like the Soviet system, which is just so bad at, at providing a decent standard of living and, and basic consumer goods and whatever. Um, and so, you know, to me that that's, that's kind of what's going on. And, and I think about it in the same way. Again, I, I, I just keep getting drawn back in different ways to the Soviet you know, comparison um, in the Soviet system, it's like if you wanted to do the best you could to have as decent of a standard of living as you could, like you're stuck in a Soviet in the Soviet Union or you're stuck in one of the satellite states and there's no reasonable way you can get out anytime soon. And you're stuck there with your family and whatever. And you realize the whole system is, you know, completely fucked and just horrible. Um, then then it becomes just a game. Then it becomes a game of like, how do I game the system in the best way I can and, you know, do my best to not do any additional harm to anybody that I don't have to do, right? Do my best to like, you know, I don't want to go volunteer to be a KGB agent or something like that, right? Or go volunteer to be a Stasi rat. But, you know, I don't have any moral obligations to the system, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I didn't choose to be put in this system and in this situation, right? And so, you know, when I do, I go buy something from Walmart, I go buy something from Amazon because in certain circumstances, it's like, that's all I can do, you know, unless I want to, I mean, I try to, I try to go other places when it's an option, right? But, you know, for certain things or for certain things that cost way more, if you go to like a small place or whatever, it's like at a certain point, you, you've got to just, say this is an amoral system and i just have to game it 
the best way I can without violating my, you know, own principles. Yeah, I, uh, we are what I believe is like talking about Amazon and Walmart and how basically you have like a few companies that are doing central planning. I was just looking at everything on my desk and everything on my desk here, all my equipment, everything either came from Amazon or Best Buy. Mm-hmm. So you know, there really is a <laughs> condensed and central plan uh, place to get your your things from um all that has to do is break down a little bit all that has to do is make people who are pretty comfortable right now uncomfortable and somebody you were talking about the troubles i was thinking nine i was thinking that the teens in petrograd where class warfare was was started and let me tell you something if People, if middle class people start dropping down into the lower class and upper middle class start dropping down and it's because of supply, supply chains being, being disrupted because of government action, which will be seen not as government action, but will be seen as corporate action. We could see a, a class war start real easy in this country. And, um, that's not something you want to see. Have we already seen it start? That's that's something I wonder. No, I, I don't think so. not not with what I'm not where I'm going to, not where I'm going to take it. Um, I mean, we're I'm going. I'm talking about Marx's class theory, not Konkin's or or Hoppe's class theory, where you know basically the ruling class and the elites are you know, the leech class, and then you have the plundered class and the plunderer class, which is basically what Konkin and Hoppe. Um, bring it into, but no, somebody real smart, some good democratic socialist or some good um, progressive politician who, who can articulate class theory. Things start getting bad here. You're, you're going <laughs> to, you don't want to see that. And I've, I've been studying that history a lot and yeah, things get, uh, things get ugly real quick. Yeah. I, I think the, the challenge would be if there's somebody who can who can articulate that paradigm of class conflict in terminology that will resonate with random regular Americans who are not predisposed because to a lot of just regular old Americans of whatever party um as soon as you start and part of it's the legacy of the cold war and 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 all that stuff that associates you know communism equals foreign equals un-american equals bad right mm-hmm. but but could somebody come along Who's just able to articulate it in what sounds like good old all American hot dogs? No proletarian language, no uh, proletarian language or anything like that. Yeah, drop drop the red flag Marx jargon, but still have the basic narrative. Um, Because if you look back at um, my favorite socialist, who is uh, Eugene Debs. Eugene Debs was kind of doing that in the early 20th century. Like he did very well as a, as a socialist party candidate for the president in a number of elections for a third party. He did very well, especially considering he had like no, no money or anything, you know? Um, and part of it seems to be, and, and I've, I need to do more research into him because I, I find him an interesting guy. I, I really respect him because he, he went to prison for speaking out against World War One. So that's why he's my favorite socialist. Um, and Woodrow Wilson hated him, so that also makes me like him. But um, 
it seems like what he was able to do now, part of it was the timing that it was before the Russian revolution and, and the red scare in the cold war. So, you know, socialism and communism, these things didn't yet have quite the nasty connotations in the minds of most Americans. But even so, it seems like one of the things Debs was able to do was cause he was like a, he was a guy from Indiana and he was, you know, kind of an American patriot in his own way and a Christian. And so he was often able to speak socialism in a way that a lot of regular kind of middle class and working class Americans were like, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Um, and so if, if a person comes along like that, you know, somebody like, like AOC or whatever, they're not going to resonate with anywhere yeah. near enough yeah. of the country outside of the Northeast and the West coast. But if someone came along who could, who could be and speak like that all American, you know, eating hot dogs at the baseball game, sort of, sort of person, um, and then drop in class, you know, yeah. tensions and increasing, you know, because these things, this is, this is one of those things that, that I actually agree with Thaddeus Russell when he says that libertarians don't do a good job of dealing with class tension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like don't have a great way of sort of understanding it and taking it into account and analyzing it. Right. Because the fact of the matter is it's, it's just always going to be there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hardwired into our DNA, I think, by our evolution as tribal primates that, like, if there's giant numbers of people who are barely getting by and there's a tiny number of people who are living like kings, sooner or later, the the, the have-nots are going to do something. And you could have all the all the natural rights arguments in the world, and it's not going to matter at a certain point. Yeah, the torches and pitchforks will come out really quick. Yeah. yeah. That ought to be fun. Yeah. Hey, hey, um, everybody got their pitchfork. It just, yeah, you get, you just got to get popcorn futures, invest in popcorn futures because we're going to need them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I wouldn't be sad to see, you know, certain members of the elite get theirs. Let's put it that way. I, I, I would be worried that like these things always do, it'll go off the rails and eventually start whacking people that don't deserve it. And I'd also be worried about what comes after. All this is done like those those two things would would terrify me a little bit. But, you know, I can't say that just seeing if some of like the real legit power elite, you know, plutocrats um, getting theirs that that I'd be real, real sad because it's not like these people are are these, you know, free market Rothbard, Randy and heroes who just went out into the world and only did good things on the market. Like they did some of that. Right. But they're the Randian Randy villains. They're the yeah, Randian they're, villains. Yeah, they're they're political entrepreneurs, at least to some extent. All all of the people at the very top. Like you don't get to that level, to the level of like a, a Bill Gates or a Bezos or somebody by just doing purely market entrepreneurship. No, well, I mean, Bezos has that CIA contract. I mean, he's basically, yeah. <laughs> come on, it's <laughs> like Parler was on CIA. Parler was on CIA servers. Way to go, guys. Well, <laughs> yeah, they've learned that lesson a really hard way. And it'll be interesting to see if they come back. It, the, the vilification, uh, campaign of Epic, they're now trying, they're linking Epic to Russia. That's, that's started, which Epic is where Parlor has landed for a host. So just the communications has already started there. So I don't know. I still say the, I still say the left hates Russia because they abandoned communism. It's the only reason the left hates Russia right now. <laughs> It's just doesn't make any sense. It's like, how the hell did Russia become their enemy? 
Okay, I've got a, a totally new topic off of YouTube. Does anyone have any fun or interesting 2021 goals or new skills they want to learn? Yeah, I actually have a goal and I actually put it, uh, tacked it on to a, the podcast that I released today is I'm looking to do a daily live show. Oh, and, cool. Yeah. And basically what it would be is <clears throat> concentrate on exposing the crimes of, um, the, what, what we call the cathedral, the state, the academia and the press, the corporate press all working together as one. So I actually put that out as a feeler today and I've gotten quite a few emails, people saying, yes, yes, I'd support it. Yes, I'd support it. So yeah, that's one of my goals this year is as soon as possible to get that going and do it at least four days a week. I want to do it five. Very cool. Um, short to medium term, I'd like to relose about 10 pounds. I would say, um, I, I lost a bunch. I gained some initially. I was gaining muscle. Um, but then I had a few injuries and had to cut way back on how much I was exercising the last few months. And so then I gained a few pounds that were not all muscle. Uh, so, so, you know, over the next few months, I'd like to whittle that, whittle that back down a little bit. Um, other than that, I'd, I'd like to survive this semester. It was a very close run thing last time. I almost didn't make it. Um, you made it though. Yeah, it's <laughs> the nearest run thing you ever saw, as uh, Wellington said of the Battle of Waterloo. Um, but other than that, I, I want to just uh, do do some. I've got some stuff in the works for my podcast. I'm really excited about, but it's gonna take gonna take a lot of time, and I've been short on that lately because of uh, work being 2020 still. So, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. Well. I shared with the audience on the mental health episode that I've been seeing a a psychologist for a while because you have to, you have to take care of your whole self and that includes the mental. And um, I have a method I've used for a long time where I have a life strategic plan with a vision and I have three goals I'm working on to get to, to that state or um, lifestyle. And they were, including like taking care of health and recreation. Cause I tend to workaholic myself, uh, paying off my debt and increasing local stable revenue. So just as a, a move towards independence this year in August, if everything continues going the way it is, my debt is paid off. So my psychologist, she always gives me homework. Her homework was, well, what's your next goal? Because once that's done, you need it. And I finally, like after lots of self-examination, because my word of the year is balance, uh, because again, I struggle with liking to workaholic myself and then not making time for important things, um, is to get my house in order. And, and by that, I mean, lose the last 20 pounds I need to lose, make sure my actual physical house is decluttered and in order. And I have systems in place because when your house is efficient, you don't have a lot of waste and it becomes um, a support to you rather than a drain on your time. Get my business finances more dialed in so that I can use them better as a tool for making future decisions um, and getting my mental house in order so that because that's what feeds everything else. So those those are my goals. And then uh, the Living Free in Tennessee Spring Workshop is in April. We sold out in two days. 
when I release tickets. So I'm just super excited to make that the best um, event ever. I, I was at a free, I, I hosted with a guy in East Tennessee, a freedom cell event this weekend. It was regional. There were 33 people there and we all came together in this hiker hostel slash pub. And the first thing I noticed, and it was frightening to me when I realized what was going on was I was in a bar and we were singing karaoke and there were about a hundred people there on Friday night before the event. And nobody was wearing a mask. Everybody was talking to each other like strangers just interacting. Like, remember how bars used to be? I've been in bars since the shutdown started, but it's been stilted and people are afraid to look each other in the eye and they're afraid to talk to each other. And in that moment, I realized how starkly the social engineering of the last year has worked on us and me included in that. Like I had this feeling of, wait, what? I I can just talk to you, the stranger. They've stopped our ability to communicate, right? And so now I want to do more events and get more people in person because I think the best, you know, we can do or I can do as an individual is get those people together so they can talk and share and disagree and sing karaoke and drink too much beer if they want to or not drink any beer if they don't want to sit by the fire. Um, so those, those are my goals. Yeah. On, on that topic of things often just being weird. Um, I got to say, I'm not, I I at first thought it would be cool to actually have an in-person live class again after not having one since last March. Um, But then, you know, all of the in-person classes at the college are at half capacity. Mm -hmm. Every other desk is, you know, Marked off. Not allowed to sit there, so it's always every other every other desk. Um, just in general, there's very few people on campus. They they you know only have like a, a quarter as many live classes as they normally would have, uh, and so just like there's nobody in the hallways. You know, you go down to the to the student center. There's nobody there. There's nobody in the library. There's not just groups of people walking around chatting between classes, whatever. And the, the hallway that my, my office is on, there's probably at least a half a dozen other faculty offices there. I so far school's been in session for three weeks. I haven't run into one of my, not even one of my coworkers who has a faculty office, uh, my wing. And so when I go to campus, and I only go three days a week for a few hours each day, but it's actually, if anything, maybe more depressing just because it's such like a ghost town post-apocalyptic feel. You know, there's very few people. Then in my class, there's only like 10 students, and they're all weird, spaced out, you know. Um, the, the, the college is requiring masks, which, you know, that's not, that's not coming from the state. That's coming from the... Mm-hmm. the board of trustees or whatever um and you know i understand in part they're probably just doing it to to cover their ass legally but you know when you have a two-thirds empty classroom of students that are you know awkwardly spaced out that are all wearing masks like it just feels it, it feels more depressing than the zoom classes is what i'm saying yeah you're wearing a mask too right yeah when you teach. yeah yeah yeah. It's really hard to read facial expressions when there's a mask on. Yeah, you know, I tr- bluntly the obvious. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, and because of that, and because even a, a really light duty mask, which is you know what I go for, is like the the least, mm-hmm. you know, the thinnest one that exists. Um, I tried wearing one of those stupid goofy face shields you sometimes wear. See people wear because the, the college. Yeah, the college said you can wear you can wear that uh, instead of a, of a mask if you want to, and I was like, well. It's stupid looking, but on the one hand, like they could, they could still see my facial expressions and I could speak, you know, without being kind of muffled and whatever. And I thought, you know, I'll try that. And if it's okay, I'll take a Sharpie and I'll make like a Mandalorian <laughs> helmet thing on front of it and I'll turn it into a joke. Cause I already have all like masks that are basically jokes, you know, that have like funny yeah. stuff and sayings or whatever, just to like poke fun at this whole thing is ridiculous. But, um, so I tried one of those face shields and for, for a whole bunch of reasons, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Um, I, I it, can imagine that would fog up when you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. And because it's, it's curved and it's, you know, like cheap plastic or whatever. Put, like, Rain-X, put Rain-X on the inside of it. It won't fog up. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Maybe I'll try that. Cause, cause I was getting like legit spittle clouds. Because, <laughs> because I'm speaking without a microphone to project into a whole, mostly empty, but a whole room. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you're speaking so loudly, disgusting. yeah, if you, that's what I found is like, is way more than I thought. If you're speaking loudly for an hour, that face shield is going to be so like just grossly sprayed with your own, your own juices. So, um, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, now I've, <clears throat> yeah, I've flown a lot since sep- September. I've probably flown five or six times and the airports are just the worst. I mean, it's, yeah. Ugh. I mean, even you yeah. go into like, I go into the Delta Sky Club and even in there, people are like, you know, it's pr- private club and people are very happy to wear their masks and everything like that. And, um, when I was coming back from Texas, I was on, I was flying Southwest. And our gate, we were late. So they just like got us, you know, just get the hell on there. The gate next to us, the guy at the gate was actually like, I'm going to inspect every one of your masks. And if I don't find this mask to be worthy, you're going to wear this one right here. And I'm like, see, this is what happens when you give somebody who makes $11 an hour a little bit of fucking authority is they yep. turn into authoritarians. And I was just like, I was so glad that that wasn't our gate and that, you know, even our plane, the plane being late is like, okay, get your ass in there, get your ass in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, because they got to go. Yeah. yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, it's just, but I, I know people who are, are like, they just don't want to travel because of that. And I'm just like, I want to travel just to get the hell out of, go somewhere else, you know? And, um, yeah, it's just, I I get bored real quick, but man, it's traveling. So, and, and this, even if your work, even if where you work changes and goes back, goes back to the old normal, I don't think flying (laughs) is good. I don't think flying is going to change for a long time. I mean, it's, it's going to suck. It's really, flying has been a cattle car for a while. Like I remember, as a kid and as a teenager flying was like this kind of special thing you did. Tickets were really expensive. And so you might do it once in a while for a family wedding or something, or my parents divorced and were across the country from each other. So I flew and it was like a totally different experience. Now it's like a cattle car. It's like just to get through the, the whole security screening, like shoes on, shoes not on, 
belts off, belts on, laptop in, laptop out. There's all these different little teeny detailed rules that don't really do anything productive to, to protecting our security, but it's all part of the process. And I think through the compliance of that, it set the foundation for, I think there's going to be compliance for the, uh, the vaccine pa- passport that they're pushing so hard now. Yeah. And you know, another thing that made flying get worse, even just over the, you know, last few decades or whatever, uh, is that they got way more efficient with only doing flights that are near capacity or at capacity. Yeah. Whereas, man, if you go back a few decades, half the time the plane would be half empty. And there was always like you could you could just jump across the aisle and have a whole row to yourself and whatever. And now it's like almost every time um, it's full yeah. or or this close to full. There was yeah. one time um, I, I went to Ireland a bunch of summers in a row leading uh, uh, student trips over there. And out of all the times we flew back and forth across the Atlantic to Ireland, there was only this one time where the plane was like half empty. And it was the greatest trip across yeah, the Atlantic uh, I ever exactly. did. I, I went, I flopped on like a whole four seat wide row in the middle and just laid across it. And it it was just wonderful. I was like, I, I would actually like flying if it was like this instead of. You know, when Southwest had the middle seats open for so long, I flew during that time. And that was the same thing. It was like the good old days where you weren't like some dude's elbow wasn't in your, in your waist sort of thing. Or... Delta still, Delta still has that. I saw that and their tickets yeah. are going up higher in price. So they're banking on people would rather pay for a free middle seat. And I might fly Delta because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, living in Atlanta, Delta's hub is Hartsfield Jackson. So I try, the only reason I took Southwest was um, Southwest goes directly into hobby in in Houston. And and it was, it's a cheap flight. So, yeah. I love compared to Bush in that town. I prefer going in and out of hobby because it's so much faster. And I remember hearing or reading somewhere a while ago that it's not just our perception that, that planes have gotten like more of a cattle car that, that somebody actually checked and like more recently made airliners, they actually have less cubic inches of like foot yeah. room and leg room and whatever, yeah. which is hilarious because the average American is larger than, yeah. than they were 30 years ago. Right. Um, and so they're literally shrinking the seats as we're all getting heftier. So. I flew from here to Jekyll Island and it was like one of those, 13 row planes and it was a Delta and everything. And the seats were noticeably larger because it was an older plane. Mm-hmm. The seats were noticeably larger. Yeah. And now it's like you get in, you get in any, I'm usually either in a 737 or an A320 mm-hmm. and those seats are ridiculous. And they I, really are. I, I wonder if one of the behind the scenes forces driving that is actually monetary inflation because that that's the reason why, for example, two by fours aren't really two by four, right? And why like the the number of ounces in a candy bar or the number of ounces in cereal will sometimes get smaller over time. Um, it's it's one of the ways to cope with inflation, right? Is to figure out how to, you know. Um, so I wonder if partly that's what's going on. That maybe even the a lot of the airline people aren't even really consciously aware that's what's going on. But it's just a matter of we need to squeeze more people in each plane. <laughs> in order to keep covering our costs because our costs keep going up. Right. So I don't know, just a theory. I'm sure it is because they, they are the seating arrangement 
is based on in a trial if people can vacate the plane in a certain amount of time. It might be two minutes. It might be five minutes. And the people who are doing the tests or the flight, it's like a plane full of flight attendants and pilots, right, who know how they're supposed to get out of the plane. Uh, and so they have people who design those seats and the configuration with the idea of how can we get one more seat in and still get everybody out under this time limit. Hmm. And, and that is fully motivated by the financial piece. They don't, they don't really care if we're getting bigger and their seats are getting smaller, right? Just buy two seats. <laughs> yeah. Problem so solved for everybody. If efficiency is not always a good thing. I mean, just from a consumer standpoint, I'd rather have the inefficient, the planes only half full and, you know, yeah. there's all kinds of extra leg room that's excessive, right? I mean, um, there, there are downsides to efficiency. Oh, my, my, I am a five seven woman. United Airlines, uh, coach class or whatever. My knees actually touched the, the seat in front of me. So I'm not that tall. I, I, I'm very sad for all my friends who are taller than five seven and have to fly United because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I'm statistically like the exact average male height. I'm five ten and a half. Uh, and it's often rough for me for leg room. I can only imagine someone over six foot what they deal with, but, um, you know, I used to weigh over 300 pounds and I can tell you the first time I flew on a plane after losing a hundred and something pounds, I got on there and I was like, holy cow, look at this. I've got all this, you know, <laughs> extra room or whatever. Um, but then I got used to it. Now I'm like, oh, these seats are tiny. This sucks. Suck. But, but the first time it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So with all the stuff going on, the question fight or flight does come up. So what do you guys think? Fight or flight? When's it time to stay and fight? And when's it time to, to bug out? Um, do you mean bug out of a locality or bug out of an entire country? Either. You you can interpret it however you like. Um I think I, mean, I think in this context country is probably. Okay. We'll go with country. Um my answer would be there's like a balancing act in terms of how how many obstacles and impediments does an individual have to doing it mm-hmm. versus how bad are things getting where you are, right? So the more obligations and impediments and things you have tying you to a place, the higher the the threat or danger or problem level has to get before you leave. So, you know, if I was a single guy without much in the way of family obligations or whatever, and I was sitting on a nice pile of dough, I probably would have already left. Um, wow. But I'm not, I'm not uh, a single guy and uh, I don't have a pile of extra dough laying around that's big enough to, you know, make me relocate to another country in the style I've been accustomed to. So, you know, for me, the bar, the bar is a bit higher. It's got to be like, all right, genocide's coming next week. I guess we'll get the hell out of here. Um, but, you know, I, I don't blame somebody who's got more uh, ease and capability of doing so from doing so. The only issue is, you know, that then would come up is where you go, because everywhere's got problems and everywhere's got downsides. And, you know, even a place that's great right now, you got to wonder. I mean, a couple of years ago, I would have said, um, 
you know, as, as imperfect as they are, either Australia or New Zealand is where to go. But now looking at how, how draconian they got on the COVID thing, I'm like, well, there goes, there goes that possibility, right? Yeah. So, um, I'm not sure where I would bug out to today, honestly. If I were to get out, it would be Japan is probably a good place to go considering they've basically done none of this. They, they haven't done lockdowns. They haven't done masks or anything like that. They've, um, I haven't heard anything about vaccines when I talk to people I know who live there. Um, obviously Vin talks about Saipan a lot, monoculture mm-hmm. and everybody's related to each other. Everybody's related to each other. So it was like literally the, the U S military would have to come in there and like go get draconian in order to change that cult. Well, not change the culture, but force them to do what they would do. Um, I mean, I get contacted by people all the time now who moved to Mexico and they found their little niche down there and they love it. And they feel like it's uh, a lot better than here. You know, it's, it's funny when you, I, I think people who, the people who are still spewing this is the freest country in the world have not visited many other countries because, you know, there's a lot of countries you go to where you don't see any police for days, days. Maybe they're there, but they're undercover or something and they're not pulling people over for speeding and doing things like that. Um, every place has its, you know, and there are, some places you could go that are really expensive and some places you would go that are um, the taxes are high, things like that. But when it comes down to it, I just really want to be left alone and that's it. So everyone I know, Americans that I've talked to who've moved to Japan say, it's just the culture is great. Leave you alone kind of culture. Saipan, the same thing. Um, Mexico to a certain extent. I mean, you can, pay off cops to leave you alone, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's nice when there's so much, when there's so much corruption that you can, uh, you know, just be like, here, here's a 20, go away. Kind of thing. <laughs> I, I wish that would happen here already, but you know. Um, yeah. And the other thing is in a, in a larger country, there's a huge amount of difference from one city or one yeah. state or one province to the next. Right. So, you know, there's tons of places in Mexico. I would not want to even visit. Right. Um, but then there's, you know, places uh some of which are kind of like you know hidden hidden gems or whatever where things are cool and and that i think that's the case in a lot of you know bigger countries right that yeah there's american there's american towns on the baja peninsula like la paz is basically an american town you know so i've talked to people who've moved down there and it was you know the they weren't rich, but they weren't, you know, they weren't poor and they were able to buy a, a house on the beach and a vineyard and things like that. And, you know, live a very comfortable life, get left alone. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you can do it, if you, if you got a chunk of, chunk of change saved, I mean, now would be the time. Now would and be it's the just, time. it's just insane. I mean, it's insane here. It's so the rhetoric is really what, I mean, People could say, oh, well, it's just talk and everything. Well, there, are, it's not talk, it's ideas. And ideas spread and ideas take hold. So, yeah, I, I think it's troublesome. I think it's more than troublesome, but yeah. it's, 
I'm banking on right now a strong community around me in my immediate vicinity and a state that hasn't gotten too draconian yet. But I can tell you this, in our community, we're talking about where would we go to and how would we get there right now? And, you know, because I, I look at I look at what's happening here. I had an interesting talk with Vin where he said, just look at the story in history that this is telling that we're in right now and then look at what happened and make your decision. Right. And, and what I took from that was choose the role you want to be in that story. Cause some people may want to stay and fight. Some people may want to be the underground railroad, right? It, it just, you have to decide for yourself, but we are definitely thinking what, what if I can't stay in the holler anymore? Right. Because eventually it, it looks the, the empowering of the power structures is, is strong and Tennessee mirrors Oregon 20 years ago right now where land use planning and zoning and all of that got really strongly implemented. And then once it was implemented, that was used to crack down and it flipped the state because the people who would have fought against that left and it improperly, you know, inflated home values and all of those things. And you see how that set a foundation for what's going there on there. Now I've, I've, I've known several people to flee. I, I met a woman last weekend who in June got in a car with her husband and her daughter and drove out of Portland, Oregon. They were a couple, they lived a couple blocks from where the riding was all summer long. And she said, we drove out of there with what was in our car, not knowing where we we're going to end up. We just knew we had to leave. I will say that if you, if it's gotten to the point where you're thinking that you have to abandon the holler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shit, shit's fucked up. Or are we the underground railroad? That's the other thing. I like to help people. I don't know. Now that I said it publicly, like, you know, there's a big old target here, right? <laughs> okay. Question from YouTube. And then I know we're getting close on time. Can you hang with us a little bit, Pete? Sure. Over the line. Um, somebody asked a, a while ago if what are two what are two things? I'm just gonna say what's uh, something that you would be willing to purchase exclusively with crypto. The goal being to create new opportunities for people who work in the crypto space. Met with silence from the gaggle. I will start because I've thought about this because I saw the the um. The question, the answer is I'm willing to buy anything with crypto. And if it looks feasible for me to buy it exclusively with crypto, I will. An example of that is the bags in which Holler Roast Coffee come out in, I can buy with crypto. So then I just do. I've, I've taken like ever since one of our first episodes, I thought, well, if I'm going to talk the talk, I better walk the walk. And I've, I've started going all in on crypto. So that's something, anything that's, that's, manageable. I'm even looking at shipping with crypto now. Can can I get shipping done with crypto in a way that isn't just like and then it uses the USPS system, right? Which is just converting it back into USD, but where it goes end to end in crypto. Yeah, I mean, I I can't think of a like a real specific thing. Um I, I mean, I would say I'd be a, anything that it would be competitive to, to what it would cost in dollars and also 
competitive to a dollar transaction in terms of convenience, mm-hmm. um, I'd, I'd lean towards doing just cause, um, I mean, probably the, the things where it's the most interesting is things that are black or gray market, but you know, that's a whole, it's a whole different world. That's a whole, whole can of worms there, but yeah, you know, the whole show um, on that. yeah, cer- certainly any, anything that, you know, that for whatever reason you want some, um, additional OPSEC on would, would be a candidate and I'll just leave that there. Pete, what do you got? Oh, you mean we're, we're talking about crypto things about our crypto, yeah. um, that you would require. Um, I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting if people started, if content creators started, um, putting out certain content that only that people could only see if they had a uh, cryptocurrency. I mean, they, they would, it would have to start with somebody who has a pretty big platform and everything like that. But, um, mm-hmm. that would, that would be cool. Yeah. Um, it would be nice if a, a grocery store chain or something start, started accepting crypto. That would, I remember they were talking about Kroger doing that a couple of years ago. They yeah. were going to stop accepting Visa and they were going to accept Bitcoin. And I was like, well, let's see if that happens. But, um, you know, I don't know. You know, I mean, I've, I accept crypto for a couple books that I wrote and for, um, yearly support and everything. And I actually had a, somebody send me a large amount of Bitcoin last week. That was very Woo. nice. Uh, yeah, you, I woke up and I was like, Oh man, this is better than waking up to never mind. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I think Vin's thing where he, um, his second book was only available for crypto. I thought that was, uh, that was an, a good idea. You know, it forced people who had never bought crypto before if they wanted his book to buy crypto. And he said that he made way more money off of that book and than um, the first one that was on Amazon. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So like if the goose is going to have two shows a week, our second one has to be for crypto. Behind yeah, yeah, yeah. Paywall is what you're saying. Yeah, crypto paywall. Like that. Yeah. I like the idea. <laughs> yeah. On a, a site that only takes crypto. Which we can totally do on our site right now. Um, great. Well, any other, so I know we're getting short on time. What do you want to leave people with? It's kind of been a variety show. We're all feeling the weight of the changes that have been happening. Um, what are your last thoughts to folks as we wrap up tonight? You want me to go first? Sure. Head out to the range. Um, <clears throat> get to know your weapons and uh, um, hopefully you stocked up on ammo and keep them clean. And um, yeah, that's about it. CJ, what do you got? Um, yes. And, um, uh, Try to to get in or stay in as good of physical health uh, and athletic shape as you can, because you never know when. That's one of those things that, like our our absent co-host uh, Jack would say, that's a good thing. Whether times get tough or even if they don't, um, because even if even if the shit never hits the fan anywhere near you, you're still healthier and and stronger and all that stuff. Uh, and, you know, and I'm saying this as someone who's struggle, struggling with it every damn groundhog day. Uh, try to keep 
your sanity as best you can, uh, for your own sake, for your, your loved one's sake, your, if you have any dependents or family that you need to worry about. And, um, also keep in mind that if everybody around you is losing their mind and you're staying sane, you have a huge competitive advantage. So it's, it's worth trying to stay sane for that reason too. Yes. And yes. Um, my other addition would be find your people, be in a community, foster your community, foster those relationships. Don't expect your community to just be there. If you haven't put your own heart and soul into it, and don't expect it to be there in one or two days of trying. It's it's a long-term thing, and that's why you want to find your people, whoever they are, whether it's through a freedom cell, whether it's through talking to people in the comments in our social networks, whether it's going to church, anything. But find your people because if your choice is not flight and things do get really bad here, if you look at places where things have gotten bad, the people who seem to do the best are the ones who have mutual assistance support networks through their relationships, including people who work at grocery stores, being able to get them first access to things, to supplies as they come in, right? There there are lots of ways we can help each other. But if we don't feed that, then, then you don't have it when you need it. Okay, guys. Well, thanks for joining us on this 26th episode of Unloose the Goose. If you want to Stay connected with us. Go to unloosethegoose.com, sign up for our email list, or just go to one of the social networks and interact with us. We are on MeWe. That's where we are the most active. Well, actually, also on our Telegram group. Those two areas are where I see the most conversation. I can tell you after what's been happening that I can't think of a co-host all that interested in, in using Facebook as a tool for us. So what I've noticed on Facebook is Jack is up there posting in the goose group why haven't you guys left this put this platform yet and um honestly i haven't been in there doing much either i don't know if y'all have but i would say after being given notice by big tech that we are actively putting our effort into some of these alternative alternative networks and looking actively for decentralized platforms like odyssey instead of youtube for example So do go follow us there and have a great night, everybody. Unloose the goose. We'll take no views.